here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations, limited time only, plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery. This is Everything Elite, the world's best podcast devoted exclusively to all elite wrestling and the elite extended universe. I'm Aaron Bentley, and I am joined, as always, by my good friend, a man who hates finding out what his friends have been doing since the last time he talked to them. It's Nate, a.k.a. Epitasis. What's up, Nate? Hi, Aaron. No banter this week. Carry on. All right, joining us again, who hopefully will engage uh, in some banter with me, it's Mike Spears. What's up, Mike? Hey, y'all. It's your old pal, Mike Spears. Uh, you know, just kind of in the thick of things, about to go up to the mountains for a couple days. So I'm pretty stoked about that. Going to get up in the Smokies. And then, you know, other than that, you know, just another week in the life. How have you been, A.B.? I've been great, Mike. I have. I think I had a brief through last episode. I have another <laughs> brief through tomorrow. So very exciting stuff. But the most exciting thing... A returning guest, huge return here, the very first Everything Elite guest. It's Kara, folks. What's up, Kara? It is Kara. Hello, everybody. I'm Kara. I have now officially been on this podcast more than Aaron Taub, so I'm <laughs> just, I just take his place as a host now. Yes. Uh, you're representative of the furry community to Voices of Wrestling. How's everyone doing? <laughs> I'm good, Kara. Nice to have you back on the show. Uh, I think that makes you the complaints department now if you're taking AT's spot. Oh no, it's still it's still AT. AT is never getting out of that. He's still on assignment and he's the complaints department. That's correct. He is actually extremely on assignment right now. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, you know everybody. You know who, who else here. Make sure that you're following all those people on Twitter. You can follow the podcast account at everything AEW. You can find me at Aaron Like the Car. Nate is at Epitasis. Mike is at Fuji. Hey ya. Uh, that's Fuji with two eyes, like Don Fuji. And Kara is at Kara Anza. Am I saying that right? You are saying that right. Beautiful. Make sure you follow Kara. Probably the best content of everybody on this podcast. I think my official title is probably content creator. <laughs> yes. Yes. Make sure you subscribe to the show. You can get our feed uh, by searching Everything Elite on the podcast app of your choice. If you're doing that on iTunes, make sure you give us the five-star rating and review. Nate will, of course, let us know later if there have been any new reviews. Uh, for the show. You can also get the podcast on the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network feed if you subscribe to that. And you can see us pretty much every Thursday night. You're going to be getting this one a little earlier on Thursday because it's a holiday. So none of us have to work today. Well, except me. So it's beautiful. Okay. Here's what we're going to talk about today. We've got, of course, the review of Fighter Fest. We'll break down the whole show. We're going to talk about what Tony Khan said after the show. A little fight for the fallen news. Uh, some all-out weekend news, little notes on talent coming and going. Uh, I'm excited to talk about the AEW AAA relationship. Uh, we got some notes on that for the end of the show. And I regret to inform you there will be no 
BTE recap this week. Isn't that two weeks in a row, Nate? I don't think so. Didn't I do one? No, I definitely did one last week. Yeah, he did one last oh, week. Oh, that's right. We weren't going to do it, and then you did it. Got yeah, it. I did it, and I okay. fucking crushed it, I think you said. I think you said I slayed it and did the best one ever. <laughs> yeah. I definitely would offer to give the BTE review this week, but that ha- BTE came out three days ago, and as yeah. such, I've already completely forgotten it. So, I mean, my memory doesn't last that long. Yeah, I think the thought process here is just we're probably going to talk for a long time about Fighter Fest, so uh, no reason to make this longer than it has to be. Let's get right into it. Fighter Fest. I want to start with uh, overall thoughts. So, Nate, tell us just generally what you thought about the show. I thought the show was really good. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Um, the pre-show was still sort of weird, uh, but at minimum, it was better than the Double or Nothing pre-show. Um, and I thought the main event was more fun to me than the double or nothing main event. Uh, so yeah, I thought it was a, a, another great show and, um, and frankly been a little surprised that, uh, uh, people have been a little more split on it, but whatever. Yeah. I, I thought it was a solid show like Nate. The pre-show was a, was better than the first one. I, I felt like that the three-way tag was one of the was the best match they've had on pre-show so far. And I like the main event of this more than double or nothing. And it's kind of gave us an idea of what their like in your house, uh, clash of the champions shows are going to be like, but I can't wait for this. Like, yeah, I mean, if I could watch a full show in three and a half hours, I'm happy. I don't like long wrestling. So I liked it a lot. Cara hit us. What you got? Yeah, absolutely. No, I think the show was a total net positive. They got out of it, everything that they wanted to. I feel like they set out to achieve a number of things. And it happened. I'm almost at the point where I can maybe say the pre-show is good. And that might be a little bit of a take in that it accomplished what I wanted to. I'm shocked by, um, I'm shocked to hear that people like were split on the show, mostly because I'm too good at following people on Twitter. And so I don't follow anyone with that opinion. So I wouldn't have heard that. And yeah, no, just a good show. Yeah, I'm sure there are people I don't follow that didn't like this show. Um, really, Dave was like weirdly super critical of the show, like picked it apart at length um, on his Observer review, which is like most of most of the you know other opinions that I intake are you know uh, meet that minimum intelligence level. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I was I was pretty much positive on everything after uh, after the pre-show. Yeah, I thought it was a very good show. Nothing great on the show, but a lot of really good stuff. Nothing bad at all on the show. But let's talk about the pre-show a little bit. I kind of, so a friend of the show, Ogan, had a take on Twitter, basically like, look, the pre-show is not to bring in people. The point of the pre-show is not to give a taste and then get you to buy the show. It's only for people who are already going to watch the show and are so into the show, they're going to watch the pre-show. He also suggested it might be for podcasters. So it's particularly relevant to us. I think Oates right. Who gives a shit? The people in the crowd loved the pre-show. They went crazy for just about everything. There's no indication that they, we're going to talk about business in a second. But no indication that people tuned out or fewer people watched it because of these pre-shows. So I think all the talk about the pre-show uh, is overblown. Not for me, probably. You know, some of the stuff on there, not for me. But it's clearly working. So maybe people should shut up. Um, so I'll pass along just some anecdotal, you know, posts from people and shit that were saying, oh, you know, uh, my friends who are sort of lapsed or casual friends were kind of getting out of wrestling. 
So we did a big watch party and they came over to, you know, watch their first pay-per-view in a while. And the pre-show stuff was, you know, they said, oh, this is the kind of stuff where I don't want to be, you know, I feel like I'm a bad host when I'm showing my guests this and being like, oh yeah, check out this sick librarian gimmick. Um, so I, you know, I do think there's a, there's a potential harm to having goofy and bad shit on the pre-show. Um, I, I guess that, I, it, why have wrestling on the pre-show? Like if the pre-show is intended to be there to sell you on the show, then, then make it hard sells and video packages. Cause they're very good. The video packages, if it's going to be wrestling, then it's really part of the real show if you know you have only have so many matches and you're putting three of them on the pre-show like that is effectively part of the real show um so you know the function of the pre-show is really sort of secondary i really think this is the content of it the librarian stuff was kind of bad the javeli stuff was more amusing and that is kind of the silly stuff that would play better to a casual fan i think um but uh, again, it's also maybe not in line with like a serious wins and losses sports oriented promotion. Yeah, I think the thing about the pre-show is the one thing that I even I want to criticize about it, and then I'll be probably the highest on it is that the, I do want to point out like how different it seems from the rest of the promotion. Yeah, that very sports oriented versus the kind of uh, sports entertainment oriented kind of style of promotion but uh what i want to share about the pre-show is that a lot of the people that i've been watching wrestling with lately and especially AEW with are people who not are lapsed fans but just people coming from outside of wrestling and are just just dorks you know who <laughs> just understand that like oh wrestling is this hot thing right now and my people people who i'm friends with who are smart like kara you know think wrestling is cool and those people love that librarian shit <laughs> I, my friends were fucking eating there, there, and there are this whole audience of, you know, that's who some of your, you know, quote unquote bullet club t-shirt fans are really are just like people who are, I think, younger than our generation, even in a lot of cases, and just people who actually somehow do go to the hot topic and buy things in that store, you know, that's not an experience that I can really understand. But I think there's a lot of people out there who I think are cool people um, who represent that kind of fan that like yeah i don't get the library and stuff but i'm not gonna say it's bad because a lot of people like it and i think it's fine uh i thought the jabali stuff you know went over really well for me um specifically i'm a fighting game person too but i think that, that was just a well done comedy match by like a professional comedy performer who has probably you know has had matches with a sex doll so he can have matches with the Jabali. so yeah um, to the, to to that point i think there is a benefit if you're trying to cast a wide net here and get, you know, wrestling fans and potential consumers from all sorts of demographics. If you have a big tent wrestling promotion, so to speak, um, it does like compartmentalizing some of the goofier stuff and saying, hey, this that stuff's going to be in the pre-show. That does sort of make it easier for like the hardcore you know, Mid-South people to swallow that pill and be like, oh, well, that goofy stuff's just on the pre-show. Then we get into the, you know, the nuts and bolts wrestling. And that's something that Tony said in the uh, press scrum after the show is that they're looking for about a 90% in-ring versus outer-ring thing. So having all the, like, BTE-relevant stuff in the, in the pre-show pretty much allows them to have the match, 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 
in-ring angle, match, match, match. So they had for the remainder of the show. So it, this seems to be the formula they're working with. So even though I know some people are like cut bait on the librarians and, you know, the Jabali thing was weird and didn't, and was a turnoff for them. Like this is, looks like the, that this is the model they're committing to going forward. Now, that being said, are some of the characters could either use some retooling or just completely just going, all right, this isn't working. Maybe, but I mean, the Jabali thing, at least among people that were not wrestling fans, though, who know, who knew of Jabali, like, like Kara, I'm into esports and fighting game. They thought this stuff was hilarious. Like they're like, okay, we're seeing that this big pompous asshole get his ass kicked with a, by a big oily guy. So there is a draw here with this thing, and it seems like that Jabali is like a once a year tie-in whenever they're going to be in CEO. I also do think the esports thing is real. Like there were people out there who were popping for specifically Golden Boy, and I popped big for Justin Wong showing up personally. And like that's a name who means nothing to maybe ninety percent of my timeline, but it's cool that, that they can have that kind of big tent promotion. Yeah, I, um, the one thing that did sort of add to this event overall, I think, was having I don't know if they were newer fans or just this is like something um, that's a element of being like a fighting game community crowd is. You could see the excitement in the people in the first few rows of this show and like see them really freak out and get hype about things. And that added to the show overall. So I, I think that's sort of a good aspect to doing like this weird tie-in show to like this captive fighting game tournament audience is you get like a different feel and you get like some, oh yeah, this is what like this is what people who haven't watched sixteen thousand wrestling shows, how how they react to a giant spot like that. All right, let's talk a little bit about the attendance, the viewership, and then we'll get back into the the match-by-match breakdown. But according to Dave Meltzer, the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, the show drew uh, 4,200 paid, and there were about 5,000 people in the building. Dave notes that's great for a company with no television and above what house shows in markets that size are doing, uh, even by WWE. Uh, His take, that was interesting you say that, Nate, because Dave's take was that he didn't think there were a lot of uh, gamer walk-ups, that it was really more the BTE fan base. But I don't know that that's, it's like what Carr is saying. I'm not sure that that necessarily is exclusionary because it could just be that there are people who are into BTE who are not the people who have seen 16,000 wrestling shows. So I think that's interesting and uh, interesting that Dave talks about this number, which this is uh, kind of a scary I don't know, floor to put on AEW is the idea that this 4,200 number is what he kind of looks to expect for them to do outside of places like Vegas and Chicago. I mean, for a weekly show, 4,200 would be drawing more than SmackDown's drawing and what Raw drew after the uh, last pay-per-view. So it's a big number. Yeah, it's a big number. And for like the kind of crowds they have, and I mean, this is kind of also what Ring of Honor is trying to do, but are brutally failing at, have been able to get this because this is the area of like the small NCAA basketball arenas, which are cheaper to, to rent out and all that. So I think that having a number like this, and especially seeing how much of a success this was for BR Live, at least is something pretty fortunate for them going forward that shows that, okay, we can do all right outside of our big tentpole shows. I think the striking thing about the attendance here is, uh, it, you know, Mike was talking about Ring of Honor, like the core of this promotion came directly from Ring of Honor when you were getting like, you know, a uh, uh, thousand to fifteen hundred on their 
uh, bigger tour shows and like their, you know, largest show ever was like 6,000. Um, and, uh, you know, already you're looking at like at minimum doubling what Ring of Honor would do to tripling to quadrupling, which really, I think, um, speaks to, I don't know, I, the degree to which the Ring of Honor creative was holding back the talent or the branding was holding back a lot of this talent. Um, and uh, Dave said, you know, it, it might be the case that elite fans were under supporting Ring of Honor, even though that was the company where they all spent most of their time. Um, but I, I think that's it's kind of remarkable how quickly, um, you know, Ring of Honor has become irrelevant uh, uh, in light of AEW becoming like a genuine number two. And then as for the BR Live success, they averaged 140,000 viewers, but there were a total of 350,000 different viewers during the course of the live show. So Dave provided some comparisons, but I didn't think they were that helpful because they related more to signups over a time period. So we really don't know what that means, except that if you got 350,000 people to look at this at some point, that seems like a, a shitload of people to me. Yeah, I guess I don't. It, there's no way to make sense of these numbers to me because Dave guessed that they signed up like 300,000 new people that, you know, were not previously uh, BR Live buyers for the previous pay-per-view or whatever. And if you signed up that many people, then how come so few of them watched the whole show? <laughs> like only um, 140 thousand watch the entire show but if they signed up to watch the show then why didn't they watch it that doesn't make any sense um so i i don't know the it's he said that they were happy with the number so i i don't know about numbers in this department but if they were happy with it then i guess it's good but it is kind of like a hundred thousand people bought the pay-per-view but only one hundred forty thousand were willing to watch the free show even with like pretty big match on top it's kind of you know is that is are we reaching like the maximum awareness level the, the maximum penetration level you know when we get uh this far above a hundred thousand i don't know well dave also pointed out that or at least you know surmised this that with a free show it could be that people felt freer to jump in and out you know go watch something else for a little bit come back in because yeah it does sound like they averaged one hundred forty thousand, but three hundred fifty thousand people came in at some point so now, that's bad if you think that that means they turned those people off at some point. But we don't – it's not like quarter-hour breakdowns. We don't know when they came in. So did they average 140, but 350,000 people were watching the main event? I mean, I have no clue. We just – we don't know. Yeah, and Dave also mentioned that the numbers uh, could be added to by the VOD, um, you know, streaming afterwards. And since that is free to view as well, I feel like that could be a potential part of the audience as well, especially with this being – you know, kind of your B-level show. It's not like you're expecting anything, you know, can't miss on the level of, you know, a Mox debut or so on and so on. So I think a lot of people could have watched these things on VOD and that number would have been higher. And yeah, you have that bouncing in and out like Nate was talking about. Something else worth talking about because BR Live is just for North America was how this show did on international pay-per-views. Since there was a feed for this show if you were outside the United States on fight and Dave said they did about 14,000 buys which is kind of an insane number especially considering that double or nothing he also states did 20,000 buys outside of the United States so if you're having that that small of a drop off at least in my mind I guess it's about 66% of your first show but for essentially what was seen as a free show 
as a Clash of Champions B show, it still like shows that people are willing to pay for it. And at an amount that really outside of WWE and the, uh, I'm trying to remember what exactly, the uh, Russell Kingdom that was on pay-per-view had, you, you don't see these kind of numbers for wrestling shows. So it still feels like to me there's it, there's a level of success, even though we don't know exactly like, okay, when you have a average of 140,000, does that mean that you might have only had like 20,000 people looking at one time and then everyone loaded up on the back end? I mean, it's just something that I feel like that that's a pretty nice number for them to have for a show like that. I also got the sense it was easier. I know this is weird because it was free in the United States, but I got the sense it was easier to pirate this show that they weren't fighting it as much as they did double or nothing. So I don't know if, especially overseas, if there were more people watching pirated streams than we had for double or nothing. Okay. Let's get into the, the card here on the pre-show. We started out with the best friends, Chuck Taylor and Trent defeating uh, the SCU team of Frankie Kazarian and Scorpio sky and private party. Trent got the victory with strong zero. I think Mike, you already said that you thought this was the strongest pre-show match that they've had so far yeah um if i if i can jump in i think that just if if you're like a stars pervert this is probably the best match on the show entirely to me oh yeah i had this as my second highest rated match on the show as a stars pervert i had this at four stars this was a notebook match i love it this is exactly the kind of stuff that is in my wheelhouse i like a full sprint tag match and you have guys like uh, like best friends who have done these style matches for a long time and the same with Kazarian and Sky then Private Party this was exactly the kind of match to introduce Private Party to the uh, AEW fan base and, I mean as as probably the, the biggest unknowns uh, of the company so far I mean outside of people who are huge hogheads uh, I don't know where else you would have seen Private Party <laughs> up until this hogheads oh, so, yeah. shout, out, shout out to Raw number one hoghead yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I love this match. This match owned. Uh, Mark Quinn had like one of the best shooting star presses I've ever seen. Like it was just the smoothest thing I've I've seen. And I've seen a lot of shooting star presses. It was easily better than Matt Seidel's shooting star press, which was known for being a very smooth one. I just thought it was great. I love this match. Yeah. So this, um, the I think the strong part of this show was how well laid out a lot of these matches were. Um, and this one started that trend because they just did a. Uh, immediately successful job basically of letting private party shine and establishing these guys um, as stars. And, you know, they, they performed at a level to make that happen also. Um, that it really, I mean, the crowd went crazy just from Mark Quinn entering the ring and doing his like super high uh, over the rope, you know, rope bound entrance there. Um, their gear looked awesome. And, uh, you know, that they, they also established them as like a threat because they were doing all these cool moves. But then when they actually took control of the, the match and got the crowd like super into the match for the first time on the show, uh, SU and Best Friends like teamed up to, you know, try and bring them down and, and regain control of the match. Um, and the crowd got behind Private Party enough to the point that it made the Best Friends heels in this match and they were booing the Best Friends comeback attempts. So... Uh, yeah, this was a lot of fun. Got really hype. Crowd got super high at the end. Um, this was kind of also a funny crowd in that they would peak really high for like spots and particular moves, but there was not like a lot of like ambient noise or cheering or chanting or stuff like that. It was like more reacting to the bigger spots, I thought. Uh, but yeah, awesome, awesome opener. Uh, cameraman botched the best friends hug, zoom out, 
So that was the <laughs> only big negative of the match. Brutal. Yeah, that was very funny because they did. They somebody gave him a note on what to do, but they obviously had never seen it done before because they just did a very slow rainmaker zoom out. <laughs> yeah. So after the match, we get the Dark Order cutting a promo uh, on the screen. The lights go out. Uh, when the lights come back on, the minions are around the ring, uh, just like a double or nothing. But then the lights go out again, and the Dark Order is gone when the lights come back up. Yeah, this was executed poorly, I thought, because they took too long with the lights up, or they took too long to get the minions out there, or whatever the case was. Uh, but it just took too long to do, and the best friends were like, you know, trying to sell being scared or whatever for a while. Um, and like it, after a while, I was like, all right, you guys aren't attacking us or anything, so let's just turn the lights off again already. Also, the fucking commentator was like, oh, they're surrounded all, on all sides. And they clearly weren't surrounded on the front of the ring. Like, they could have gotten out that way. Uh, so, you know, the idea is fine, but it was kind of executed poorly. We see the Young Bucks backstage. There's a lot in this part of the show. There's a lot of riffing on Firefest and kind of jokes about that. They talk about how they had to sit economy in the middle seat on the way there, run into the Bucks. Uh, they run in. No, Kenny runs into the Bucks. And he says the seamstresses are working on new gear. Uh, Kenny blew half the budget on the new gear. So they're not going to be able to afford all of the models that they want to have on stage. So QT cuts some of the models. We saw four models before the first match. Here QT comes and takes two away and then brings out mannequins in their place. Did, uh, did SB watch this show with you? Yes. Do you have any thoughts on the mannequins or the models? Uh, I mean... Not that I particularly recall. I'm sorry to let you down on this. Okay. Um, I, I I was mostly just grateful that they didn't make the models stand out there for the whole show because I was yes. like already getting like tired and uncomfortable for them if they were going to be standing on the stage for three hours or whatever it was. The, uh, I, feel like, I feel like about two matches was the right amount of time to have models. I think like even like CMLL amounts of models is a little bit too many models for my taste, but some models is fine. Um, yeah, the... So I like I like the models and I like the Firefest concept and everything because it gives the event a distinct theme and something you can like latch onto. This is something that also GCW does really well, where they have good concepts for their shows, um, and and they did a good job on this show of like theming it with the tents and the band set and the logo had palm trees and all this shit. So that makes it just seem like more of a fun event. Um, but you know the and the actual humor, you know, you can take it or leave it as far as the fake documentary. But I was thankful that they didn't that they all the documentary footage looked the same and it was clearly shot like the same camera uh, as compared to the Double or Nothing pre-show where there was like three different camera setups for all their different backstage promos or whatever. So that was my main takeaway here. I was like, oh, okay, they had some quality control, and now you can tell that this was all like shot by the same production. Yeah, that was something that was really annoying to me when I rewatched Double or Nothing was how they had very stark production differences. And this time, like you, you there was the part of QT that was staged exactly like I forgot which one of the Firefest, uh, which one of the documentaries had that. But the rest of it, like the backstage part with Matt and Nick, it was all the same production style. And I, you, you know, it's one of the things that I think that they're still kind of establishing, okay, this is going to be our production style for the most part. Like their in-ring stuff I've noticed has had more of reliance on crane shots in a way that I guess I was told TNA used to do a whole lot, which makes sense because of who they hired from TNA, who I think is running the production truck. But I like seeing that at least for like the backstage, the way that they're doing the backstage angles, they've at least 
kind of formalized. This is our aesthetic here. These are the kind of lenses and the wide view we're going to do for it. I would now like to bury the take that it was somehow offensive to replace the models with mannequins. Where do you get these terrible takes from? These, don't, <laughs> these takes don't exist to me. I got to delete some people off Twitter. But yeah, there's a take out there that it's like some statement about, you know, women are uh, are inva are not valuable because they can just be replaced by mannequins. Nate is really thinking about diving in here, but isn't sure if he wants to, if anyone's wondering. I'm not really going to complain about the take. But uh, okay, so the place that we heard about the take was a. This is sort of why I threw to SB or attempted to was a significant <laughs> other, a significant other of a friend of ours who had that take, and from her, I'm sure it comes from a genuine place, mm -hmm. and it was in good faith, and it probably honestly bothered her, and I can totally understand that. Um, so I'm not going to criticize that whatsoever. It's totally valid, and, and and she has a point like that. If you're reading it for that message then you can find that message there all the I other think, people that are bad faith wwe twitter that are saying that take or whatever I, i'm not we're not i'm not engaging or uh, entertaining that from them yeah i apologize i thought that take was from twitter and not a real person um because twitter doesn't have real people on it. <laughs> um yeah and i think that i think that what you could say about that if we want to address it a little more seriously is that i think that is a little bit of the joke that they were going for and you can say whether they whether it really landed or not for you and then it it could be offensive but at least i think it was a little bit of a thoughtfully stupid joke and not just a completely stupid thing yeah and it was also it fit to the theme and the joke of the event that they're doing it's not like they were doing yeah. this on a wednesday night because and with their you know nitro girls or whatever and just replace them with mannequins because that's the joke the joke is about Firefest and influencers and Instagram models. So that's considerably more specific. So it can't can just be a joke about that. Right. That's my point. It, I was, I'm not trying to bury, I didn't know where, I didn't remember where the original take came from. And I don't even recall who the person was now that you say it, but my, what you say makes sense. If you have no idea of the context of what's going on here, I can understand why you would be uh, nonplussed by, by the, by doing this. But if you know everything that's going on and you were familiar with the Firefest documentaries, it's like, it's a play on that. And it's funny. IMO. It was funny to have QT doing it. That was, I was like, yes. yeah, it's, that was funny to me. All right. Leva Bates comes out. She's doing the, the shushing thing reveals Peter Avalon in the Firefest tent gimmick. Uh, he gets upset, throws the tent in the pool and then kills a mannequin. Now that's what we should have been upset about. I mean, now we're just killing women out here. Uh, Leva Bates says gamers should read books. I strongly agree with Leva Bates on this. Wasn't a big fan of this gimmick until she joined my anti-gamer crusade. Uh, I honestly think this was like a C plus B minus promo. Like I think people are <laughs> way too harsh on like what this librarian stuff entails. Fair. And it gets uh, over to people. It, uh, oh, absolutely. It was over in the building. Uh, they both say they're the librarian and they shush each other. I disagree with your assessment that it was over in the building. I think uh, we've talked about how the crowd wants to support the promotion and wants things to succeed and does not have an adversarial relationship with the product like the WWE crowd does. So I think they were willing to give it a chance, but it was still like, you know, not 
over. <laughs> it was like the crowd, you know, took it as an opportunity to amuse themselves or whatever. I thought the so I guess I I have no criticism whatsoever for anyone that hated this segment. I probably lean toward not liking it because I don't understand where the what the purpose of the gimmick is or where is it's going. Like it was a in joke on BTE about Tony Khan handing down a mandate to do this bad librarian gimmick, which they all knew was bad. Um, and then somehow it ended up being two gimmicks and they're just going to be characters now doing a bad gimmick that they acknowledge is bad. Um, that's weird. I, I guess I don't really, it's, it's like two, is it like a meta commentary on WWE bad gimmicks and them acknowledging that their own product is bad all the time because they do do that. I don't know. Um, I thought the criticism of the match was probably uh, overstated. Like I thought the match was actually fine. And this is, again, I think like people have a conception of Leva Bates as a worse worker than she actually is now. I mean, obviously it wasn't superb match, but I think it was fine. I think Allie's actually good. My, my one point that I'll make a actual criticism of is Leva Bates. This whole thing is like, she does a bunch of costumes and has cosplay and has unique gear all the time. But her gear here was like very low effort, it seemed like. It was like black shorts and like a white librarian shirt kind of thing and glasses. Would like to see like Allie had major league gear. Had a lot of new major league gear on the show. Nyla had major league gear on the show. Private Party had new major league gear on the show. Leva had minor league gear. Yeah, aesthetically, it was kind of discordant to everything else on the show. I, you know, the librarian thing, like, I have a feeling that this is something that Tony Khan from how his press conferences are. This is kind of a thing maybe that he's like, oh, guys, you can go do your comedy thing with the librarians. I thought the promo was pretty solid as a gamer. I was offended because I'm a gamer who reads. So I felt personally attacked. I felt personally attacked. Read instruction manuals. (laughs) I I mean, Reading, reading the game facts. That's exactly what I was going to say. I read a whole lot of game facts for when I play Lens Granger. So, uh, yeah, it, the match itself, it just was kind of a short. I didn't like the match at all, to be honest. I, I like Ali a lot, Leva Bates. Maybe I'm the kind of one of the people that just unfairly dislikes Leva Bates because of just her performances elsewhere. I, I guess she was fine here, but it also was something that I was just like, all right. Let's get this over with. Let's get this over with. And it felt like that for an eight-minute match, it went on far too long in my mind. Yeah, I, I guess I didn't say that. But Allie defeated Leva Bates. So uh, I think her move is called the BSE. Am I getting that right? Does anybody know? What did she do? I forget. Best something ever? I thought it was a super kick. but I Best super kick ever. I think that's right. Okay. Uh, her I thought her it offense was... looked like pretty good. Allie's good. I thought it was a fine match. Like, it wasn't that great, but it was... I thought it was going to be way worse. And most importantly, it established that Leva Bates is a preliminary wrestler, that that yeah. she is at the bottom of the barrel of this division. And that's good. Like, There's a lot in this show of establishing hierarchies, which I was very fond of. And uh, so that's something that's like, it's okay if she's just going to be here to do goofy stuff and isn't going to be, I mean, she's kind of pushed, but isn't going to be pushed as a wrestler, then uh, that's fine with me. It, it seemed, I don't know, my, I saw somebody mention this on Twitter. I don't know why this started, but is this leading to Marty showing up, Marty Skrull showing up and breaking their fingers? 
That was something that one of our followers uh, suggested in a at to us. <laughs> so we should have given them credit for that. But yeah, I don't know who it was. Said that, instead. Um, that and what I said at the time was that's the best possible payoff that I can think of. Um, like that makes sense and uh, uh, pays off the librarian bit and calls back to the Marty and record producers bit. Um, it seems like a lot of time to devote on your first few shows just to do that, though. It's a good payoff, except that it ends with Marty Skrull being on your show. So that's a bummer. Marty's <laughs> actually good. Okay, next segment. Oh, wow. <laughs> All right, we see Kenny running into Brandon Cutler, who tells them that Blink 182 is not going to make it. I, I, I did kind of think the Firefest stuff was funny, except that it was kind of weird to just hear them keep saying over and over that Fighter Fest was failing. It's like, if you do view this as a thing to get people to buy your show, it's like, uh, this is a fucking disaster, folks. That's the story that we're telling you leading into the main show. Yeah, it didn't really bother me. I thought that sort of seems like it would be um, discordant or like an, uh, a weird conflict about promoting a wrestling show, but it didn't actually bother me. It was like pretty, they obviously, you know, uh, put a put a lampshade on and be like, this is a joke. So it's fine. Um, Mar was it Mark Hoppus tweeted to Kenny about it? Yes. Yeah. So that's that's like they're like super a big act now because they're like nostalgic for like our generation plus like two generations under us. I think so. Like Blink One Eight Two is like a big deal now. Like I feel like they're bigger now than they were when they were big and we were young people. Wow. Um, but uh, this is sort of goes hand in hand with like my theory that. Every wrestling, every creative person in the creative industry or is at all creative that likes wrestling just immediately jumped AEW from WWE. Like as soon as there was any sort of Western alternative, they were like, yeah, I'm going to this new thing because the WWE is terrible. So that's great. And again, they should like, you know, uh, exploit those relationships like they did with Mark Hoppus here and got him to put some eyeballs on Kenny Omega. It also proves that wrestling is cool. So you, yes. for that to be true, you're saying that Blink-182 is cool. Blink-182 is cool. Okay. I'm just making sure you know what you're saying. I feel strongly about it, actually. Yeah, I feel like there is a large segment of the pro wrestling uh, kind of commentary at the pro hardcore pro wrestling intelligentsia, as someone might say on this network, <laughs> um, that doesn't really understand irony enough to like really be highly fluent in like AEW criticism in the same way that this podcast is. It's it's very important to be fluent in irony. Thank you. Okay. Moving on. Michael Nakazawa. That's, that's a strong uh strong compliment to our show, I think. Yeah it was. We'll clip that later. Put it in a <laughs> teaser. Highly fluent in irony. <laughs> Michael Nakazawa's out he calls Jabali a cripple, which seems to get like legitimate heat from the crowd. That was okay. So it's super weird because he does that and then he immediately apologizes and is like, oh, that's not a good thing to say. <laughs> yes. And it seemed like it might have been a sincere apology. Yeah, I thought so. I took it that way. F yeah. Super fucking weird. Like, if he, uh, that, that, that indicates that he knew it was not a cool thing to say and he still said it <laughs> and then immediately thought better of it. Yeah, it just was weird. Super weird. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to give him the non native English speaker exception to any yeah. rules. De definitely give him some leeway there because he's it's uh, probably fine. <laughs> it was so bizarre though. You're like, okay. <laughs> and if it wasn't, if it wasn't a sincere apology, then they're like, okay, we're gonna use like this uh, epithet, and then 
<laughs> not a, like apologize for it, but not really. I don't know. Yeah, I thought it was sincere. And it was proven sincere by the fact that he then immediately put over some gaming thing that I don't know what it is. Uh, Evo is kind of, um, he, he referenced it because it, it is held in Las Vegas every year, the site of Double or Nothing. And it uh, is the largest kind of gaming uh, fighting game convention. And CEO is probably like your second or third in that kind of range. Okay. Nakazawa goes on, uh, he's saying it's the right leg, and Jabali corrects him that it was his left leg, and Nakazawa says, thanks, and then attacks the left leg, and we begin the match in which Michael Nakazawa defeats Jabali with a crucifix. You see, A.B., what Carr was referring to is how you appeal to gamers, because we are people, and if you are able to do this, that's how you get cheap heat with the fighting game community, is doing that. I'm not letting this moment pass me by to point that out. Yeah, he was literally doing like an Elias cheap heat by talking about a sports city, but in yeah, fighting but with fighting game tournaments. Wow, what a world! And I just said that wrestling is cool, and now I'm really rethinking that take. There is a uh, just like yesterday, the day before, Deadspin did have an article about how there were too many real fights at CEO because people <laughs> kept getting in fights or confrontations like around the actual mm-hmm. fighting game tournaments. So everybody go check that out. Um, I think there was also some Smash Brothers community drama, so. Just a great fucking uh, synergy with pro wrestling and all the drama we have. Yeah, there is perpetually Smash Brothers community drama. Um, there was some Smash Brothers spots in this match, I believe. There was a there was a shoot GameCube controller being used. Mm-hmm. Uh, see, I, th- I think it's important. That, like <laughs> this match did come off uh, very. It was a well and lovingly rendered example of gamer humor. I feel like <laughs> I feel like they actually nailed gamer humor pretty well with this one. Um, as someone who is in the gamer humor audience, and I, I, I hope the wrestling in it was a. Uh, it, it felt inoffensive enough that I hope everyone can appreciate uh, who this match was really for. And it and this one was over in a way that the librarian match even wasn't. Oh, totally. And I mean, like moments like having the uh, fight stick buttons instead of Legos, and how. Golden Boy, who we haven't really gotten into him on commentary on the show, but I'm of the opinion that they should hire Golden Boy full time. And the way that he, the way that he sold the the buttons was amazing. Honestly, like this really was a very faithful and almost loving kind of joke about this is how you do a video game uh, false count anywhere match. So I love that so much. And I thought that you know Jabali. That there was a lot of things saying that this is obviously Tony Khan's least favorite match. Like he subtly buried him on this but he says like hey this is kind of the nepotism that will happen like once a year if we do a show here and i know that like some people want the show to be like this match be on the to be a complete dark match not even be on the pre-show i thought this was fun it was no stalker chikawa or natsu samiri comedy match but it was it was solid i liked it it was like a good ddt comedy match to me which makes perfect sense considering who it's coming from yeah, I thought this was a pretty good amount of fun. Um, the This is like the fun sort of goofy pro wrestling nonsense humor that you can show to like a non-fan that you talk to that also has like a, you know, uh, uh, interest in video games and be like, hey, check out these wacky spots from this wrestling thing the other day. And like maybe that garners some interest from them and whatever this new wrestling thing is. Um, so I, I, I did not, I thought it was fun to have this on the show. Um, you know, it's not like, it's not like this was the first, so it's kind of weird to do this on this show because it's their second show ever. And that sort of makes it feel a little bit more weird, but I think having 
AEW feel like something where you can have weird one-off matches and you can have, um, you know, a, a weird little special attraction matches that only happen in this geographic area or only happen at this time of the year. That sort of like dynamism is worth having Alex Jabali on your card. And like he did fine too. And like Nakazawa, like more than did uh, enough to make this a fun pro wrestling match. Um, so yeah, this like, like this was better. This cemented this pre-show is better than the Double or Nothing pre-show. This was better than the fucking gimmick battle royale. Um, and yeah, I don't don't really have any complaints. I can understand hating this, but uh, the the people that hate it are probably just going to have to accept that this is part of pro wrestling in the in twenty first century. Also, there's nothing more boring to me at this point than like something like this happens and people are like, "I thought wins and losses mattered in this company," and I'm like, "Okay." Yes, that's a thing. But this match is between Jabali and Michael Nakazawa. Nobody and Michael cares. Nakazawa won. He won the match. Yeah, so right. he's higher on the card than Jabali. It makes sense. Which is also fair. But like Nakazawa is not going to be a major player in this company. It really doesn't matter. This match doesn't matter. Who cares? Wins and losses can still matter. And this match can also happen. I mean, give me a break. It's just, it's very boring. I do. Uh, on that point. A lot of like Dave's criticisms of this show, I do like broadly agree with, but hearing them say them were, was very annoying to me. So I'm just like, I'm not going to say them because that would be my own annoying Dave Meltzer performance or something. He's not like actually wrong, but it's just like kind of fucking chill out and enjoy the show a little bit. So I also just one last point I want to get in is that Jabali did take a couple crazy bumps for his participation in it. He took the big uh, bump off the apron through the table kind of your your little edge throwback. So, you know, it's nice when people do wacky stunts in wrestling. And so I think that's one of the better things you can do as an untrained wrestler is just do wacky things and put yourself in danger. Best take goes to TJ Hawk, who pointed out that this match was important for reminding all of us that this is what we would look like if we ever got in a wrestling ring. So it's perhaps better that we just fire off takes on Twitter. Absolutely. They also they also just did like a little a little bit of like the um justification work that we appreciate in bte and after the match is over they had moxley appear on the screen and be like hey leave all that plunder and shit out there because i'm going to show you how to really use it at the end of the show that like both justifies having two plunder matches on the same card and also is like hey that was a joke but now we're getting into the serious shit now that was just like they did that quick little promo and it, it it does a lot of the work for them all right, getting into the main card, since we spent about an hour on the pre-show, I think. Oh, boy. Shima defeats Christopher Daniels with the Meteora, and we must, of course, throw to Mike Spears to tell us, what you think about the match, Mike? I said this on Twitter that I had a very complicated view of this match as someone that, if I'm not the person leading the Shima's a Hall of Famer argument, then I am one of the like lieutenants of this argument, and... To me, his participation in this promotion in a lot of ways is getting him extra evidence to be a rightful Hall of Famer. And for what this match was, like as soon as I, like, I get out of perspective of this was not going to be an insane match, this was the show opener. This was a nine-minute match between two guys with a combined 50 years of wrestling experience, and they did exactly what they needed to. This was a three-star match that was a good three-star match, and... You know, this also kind of felt like a first-round match in, in a bola tournament in a way, just like that they weren't going into third or fourth gear. They were just going to go through it and get Shima more over, get over the Meteora as his finish, show that the Schwein is his secondary 
and and in that facet, I felt like this match was a success. Yeah, so I liked um, I, I like this match. I like having like a good fundamentally sound match like this, where it's pretty simple and it's like you said, not getting into that high gear. Having this first on the show is good because it like sets the table for all the crazier shit that's going to happen later in the show. Now I don't know if that actually works when you put three matches on the pre-show and two of them are like crazier in their own way. Like you kind of defeat that function, but um, you know, still still served the the purpose of what a opening match would would typically do. Um, and the other good thing about this match, I thought, was Excalibur did a lot of the heavy lifting of like, okay, yeah, this is a sport. Wrestling is a sport. This is what we're doing. And like making you feel like you're like learning while you're watching wrestling because he's telling you about the history and Michinoku Pro and all this shit and Curry Man. And um, that, that's that's good commentary out of him. I don't know if it's all super Mike Spears accurate because he may know better. But, uh, you know, it, it seems it enriched the presentation for sure. Excalibur was dead on. I give him an A on Shima history. Good work, X. All around uh, on the show. JR was still working at that above average level that he was at during Double or Nothing. And uh, like like we talked about, was it Golden Boy who joined the commentary through the whole show? Yeah, he was mm -hmm. a completely professional pro wrestling commentator. Yeah, it was kind of striking like how much more confident he was than Marvez because I mean, he's been doing like, uh, you know, high octane commentating on things in the past. But he was like full voiced right in there you know, going back and forth with fucking Jim R or Jim Ross. Um, yeah, he was very good. But yeah, uh, getting into this match, I think, uh, I think I'd call it something like a TV main event kind of match. You know, it kind of just your very basic kind of pro wrestling style match between two guys who are, you know, solid hands, but also like are in their forties and not going to kill each other week in and week out. And so they just want to kind of entertain you and kind of, I think it did a lot of good job in level setting that we're in the serious pro wrestling part of this card now. Here's what, you know, the good wrestling coming forward is going to look like as distinct from the pre-show, which is just, you know, kind of for funsies and warm-ups and, like you said, fanatics who will really watch five hours of wrestling or whatever. People who are deranged like us. And the right man won because sets up Shima for his main event uh, match with Kenny. Yeah, I think we. I think a big purpose of this match is that a lot of the AEW fan base is not going to be familiar with Shima. So just to show Shima here, let's show all, off all the stuff he can do. Put him with the good hands, so everyone can see that. Yeah, Shima can really keep up with these guys. Obviously, still, you know, even at his age, is probably one of the best workers in the promotion. And yeah, and and here here's his moves. Yeah, and it did. It was interesting to me because like it it was a perfect table setting because you guys see the Schwan, he did the venus palm strike into the iconoclasm he pretty much did nearly everything that he does normally like he did do his uh, he did do his lung blower off the uh, turnbuckle which they did not mention what's called because that it's based off a steroid he found back in 2000s but uh it, this really was a great introduction for him especially since i'm assuming with now that we know most of the Fight for the Fallen card. I think Kenny versus him has been said as the main event. If it's not that, then it's the Rhodes versus the Bucks. And it'll be interesting. I, I'm not entirely convinced that him and Kenny completely mesh in a way that to get like the best Shima singles match. But I'm intrigued to see because they did a really good job of setting the table for him as for the majority of the audience who aren't as broken brained as us and watch a whole lot of wrestling and know who Shima is. It's also important to remember that Daniels is insanely over with the AEW crowd. Yeah. So he's really a great person to introduce Shima with, have Shima get a win over as you're trying to establish him as a relevant player in the company. 
This match uh, and the one we're about to talk about are up on AEW's YouTube page. So even if you don't have a BR Live account, you can check those out. Uh, in the second match, Riho defeated Yuka Sakazaki and Nyla Rose with uh, some sort of a roll-up type move. Not really a move guy to be able to tell you what it was. Uh, I thought this was a lot of fun. I I think other people were higher on it than I was. I was uh, three and a half stars. I thought it was very good. I probably would have had Nyla just destroy uh, both of them for funsies. But uh, how it went ended up making sense as far as the way that they justified why Nyla didn't just destroy them. So that made sense to me. I bought into the story. I bought that they could get off offense against her based on the way that uh, the match went. I thought everyone was really good here. Nyla really got a chance to show off in ways she didn't get to last time. Except toward the end, I'm not sure if she was gassed or some. maybe she pulled a little. I don't know. She seemed a little less... Uh, high energy toward the end. Um, the crowd went crazy for most of the match, especially that big uh, top rope knee thing that Nyla did, which really uh, put over to me again that this crowd wants to enjoy everything on these shows, is going to give everybody a fair chance and uh, love this. Uh, so that's exciting for me that you know they're going along with this. And uh, I thought this was really good. Yeah, this was my favorite match on the show. Um, I thought it was fucking awesome. Probably one of the more memorable matches that I've seen to this point uh, this year. And uh, again, this goes to what I thought was the strength of this show is that all the matches were laid out really smartly. Like this was structured so that you have the two smaller women taking on the uh, larger kaiju woman. Um, and then once they actually are able to take her down, get her to the outside, do a dive on her, take her out. Then they are start to square off with each other and try and win the match. Um, they just did, you know, smart little savvy things like they established Yuka's diving clothesline by doing it uh, to Riho. And then she attempts it on Nyla and Nyla reverses it. Um, and yeah, the highlight of this match was I thought all of Nyla's big spots just got monster reactions. Um, the knee drop was the point at which, you know, people in the first row were like halfway over the barrier because they were jumping out of their seats. Um, she all, she did like that swanton, which like looked great, even though she missed it, like dying to see her hit that swanton on somebody now. Um, and I do, I, I, I kind of assumed that now I was going to win here. Um, but they had Riho win, uh, and Riho did do a like farewell to Gato move now. So it seems like she is going to be like a foundational part of the Joshi division or whatever it is. Uh, but yeah, this was a ton of fun. Crowd was going wild. Everything Nyla did was fucking awesome. Just destroying these women. Um, and Yuka also like shine, like she got the bigger, uh, baby face reactions than Riho did, even though Riho ended up winning the match. Um, so yeah, this was like a tree. This was like the, the highlight of the show to me. Yeah, no, I think I totally echo, uh, everything about this match was great. Um, I think the right person won definitely in terms of Riho. Uh, and in fact, I think the right person won because Yuka and Nyla, uh, have both gotten over in their performances, even though they haven't won a match yet. Uh, you know, I think those are the two characters that really just pop off the page and you kind of get them at first glance, whereas Riho is kind of your, uh, your kind of, you know, wrestling fundamentals, you know, kind of your veteran hand, but who can really go out there, who, you know, uh, and to, yeah, she's a veteran hand of 13 years wrestling and 22 years old. So that's, uh, love that, Joji. 
it really makes me feel like I've not accomplished a lot in my life when I hear Riho being a 13-year vet. But yeah, I completely agree with Kara. Like, this was the right move, saying that, like, Yuka Sakazaki might be the most charismatic wrestler on the, on the planet. Like, she is in a similar vein as Darby Allen that she doesn't have to win matches. She's just going to remain over. So having Riho get the win here made a lot of sense, and it looks like that now we have a storyline going forward between the two of them. So I'm down with this. And I also, to echo what all y'all said, I love this match. This match was a blast. Um, I think one of the moments that I'm always going to remember from Fighter Fest is uh, when Riho pushed Yuka Sakazaki away and Yuka just makes a sad face and the camera production gets right on it and all the commentators know to sell for it. So just Jim Ross selling for Yuka Sakazaki being sad is a pretty uh, surreal experience. I was just going to make sure we talked about that post-match angle, so that looks to be where that's going. I will say about Riho finishing up with Gato Move that I spoke to a Joshi expert who told me that that was already in the works before AEW had anything to do with Riho. So she was already going to leave the promotion. Doesn't necessarily mean that she's coming over, but the fact that they you know, are giving her victories, uh, they seem to be pushing her a little bit. Uh, Yuka mentioned explicitly on Twitter that, uh, you know, how much uh, fun she had and that she wants to come back, that she's going to be back. So I, I wouldn't be shocked if both of these women are involved going forward, but I'm not sure that the Gato Move thing tells us that. I, I really enjoyed Yuka's Twitter over the last weekend. Uh, she's great. Just a lot of photos of her hotel room. Look at the beach. We talked about the Bubba Gump thing. She loves Bubba Gump and she was excited to get a complete cookie. It was, it, it's great. It's wholesome content. Yeah, one of the rare good Joshi Twitter follows that is like a zero percent of thirst follow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you need like, if you need another good Twitter that's like thirty percent of thirst follow, then we need her tag partner Mizuki to come over. Sugar popping rabbits, magical sugar rabbits. I feel very attacked by Kara's comment about following uh, Joshi Twitter accounts. No, 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 no. I'm attacking myself <laughs> here. I'm, I'm, I'm... <laughs> Look, Hanakimura is one of the best follows on Twitter. Absolutely. All right, next we get uh, the four-way match. Hangman Adam Page. I love that JR, by the way, calls him Hangman. Very funny, every time. Hangman Adam Page defeats Jimmy Havoc, Jungle Boy, and MJF. Page uh, hits Havoc with the buckshot lariat, then the Omori driver, and gets the win. Yep, uh, again, super well-constructed match. This It's sort of like a, a synthesis of the previous two matches because it didn't hit a super hot level of crowd going wild um much like the opener but they did a really good job with how they integrated all four guys into the match and sort of established their characters while having them bounce off each other um starts at the entrance hangman gets like the big wide shot and pyro for his entrance because he's the star of the match here he's going to be one of the stars promotion going forward um we get kind of like MJF comes out with the pink and black trunks because he's still playing off the Bret Hart angle at the last show. Uh, and MJF immediately is, is trying to sneak pens from the other guys. Adam Page like tosses Jungle Boy over the top and then still goes and gets the dive that he was trying to get on MJF. It's just like, I'm the you know star babyface. That means I fucking outsmart you and I out wrestle you and I just do both the things instead of having to make a choice on either one of those. Um, Hangman, you know, gets revenge late on the match on MJF because MJF breaks a pin by pulling him out of the ring. So Hangman does the same to MJF. Um, Gets some character with MJF where he, like, grabs Bryce's hand when he's, uh, you know, being submitted in the ring and Bryce just, like, pulls it away from him. Um, And just, like, little stuff like 
uh, MJF goes to like give Jimmy Havoc the thumbs up and, and Havoc like the one spot that I had, Jimmy Havoc got in the mat- match was he flipped him off in response. Um, so yeah, like you t- kind of get a little bit of, of everybody's character. I think MJF in particular asserted himself well here. Jungle Boy almost died on like that weird flip to the outside thing he does, but you can see that like, oh, this is going to be like the super exciting undercard baby face that everybody's going to get behind and want to see uh, continue to climb, um, even if they're just sort of being used for uh, uh, spectacle matches for the time being. So I like this a lot. I will say uh, people that are new to AEW and have not been following BTE or New Japan uh, don't seem sold on Adam Page yet. Like this is probably a symptom of the Pac match being canceled to double or nothing. But if you've just been watching these two shows and all he did was win that battle royale and then this match, then they're they're kind of going, well, why is he, you know, why is he on Chris Jericho's level? But they might not be sold on that yet. Now they set him up to wrestle Kip Sabian at the next show by winning this. So that's going to give him another strong win. So hopefully he can shine a bit more there. Uh, but as far as four ways, which I'm like, you know, naturally disposed to dislike, uh, I thought this was pretty strong. I will take the contrary standpoint on this. I did not like this match that much. I think that Jimmy Havoc outside of progress is a nothing wrestler. I always kind of questioned him in this promotion. And I felt like having Jimmy Havoc here in this match was other than the fact this was paying off the Bret Hart thing. It, he looked out of place in comparison to people, even people like uh, jungle boy, who is a future product. He isn't, he, we're still seeing his development and some like MJF who by no great shakes is a tremendous wrestler. Jimmy Havoc out of everyone that I feel like we've seen on the first two shows has looked the most out of place as anyone in AEW. And I watched him in progress. Like I get the Jimmy Havoc as progress is a Sandman character. He just, it was one of the things that I guess he was there to take the fall and that's cool. But I felt like that Adam Page, this wasn't a bit more of a match. Just kind of like, as you were saying, like the whole Pac thing has thrown off, like how ideally I would guess they would want to create a championship. Uh, MJF, you know, he's never going to be a great wrestler. I mean, he's fine. He equips himself well in the ring, but he was there for like the crazy promo he had before time that from people that like watched it and weren't necessarily into the car at that point, it got people to sit down and watch. And, you know, as a jungle boy, he is 19, I think. I think he's 19, might be 20. He's someone that I feel like that we got to see little glimpses of him and it's going to be real exciting as long as AEW exists to kind of kind of chart the path of Jungle Boy. Because I feel like that he's someone that might not be someone for this year or next year, but like three or four years down the line, if like he gets older, he's able to kind of put it together. I think he'd be something special. But overall, this match was okay. Yeah, I think... Yeah, I think this match can really be equated to like kind of that first uh, first match in the card in that I just felt it was like a TV match. It got a lot of it got these four characters over to people who are not familiar with them. If they've kind of seen them before, it really did a good job of establishing who all these people are, where they are in the hierarchy, uh, which is to say that, you know, Adam Page is the highest of them and Jimmy Havoc eats falls. Um and that's kind of cool that Jimmy Havoc can eat balls, that you can bring in someone who was a star in another promotion that might draw like a couple, like 300 progress fans in who really want to see Jimmy Havoc and they'll just let him be a mid carter. And that's cool to kind of have a, have a white tent like that. Yeah. Well, uh, Jimmy Havoc like didn't do anything here. 
um he fucked people but, off but cool. at least he lost like <laughs> so that's the i guess that's the 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 good thing about his performance is oh the right guy took the fall craziest part of this match or the best part was that jungle boy moonsault i'd never seen that before maybe he does that elsewhere i'm sure he does uh but very cool where he like latches on to the um whatever it's called the post and does his little moonsault there very cool it's like an imploding uh I'm 450 almost, but he doesn't. It's like an imploding 360. I'm not like 100% sure what he was trying to do. Like, I, I only have like an 80% guess, which means it's the coolest kind of wrestling move. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next up was my favorite match on the show Cody versus Darby Allen. They go to a time limit draw. Uh, I think if you listen last week, Nate and I really disagreed on how this match should go. And I think that they maybe found the perfect balance between the two things that Nate and I talked about in that Darby did get his comeback. You know, he was kind of beaten down. I'm sure Nate's going to talk about it wasn't as compelling maybe as uh, you would want that part to be, but we still got to see the Darby comeback. We got to see Darby doing crazy stuff and, you know, falling uh, off the top rope onto his back on the apron, which was very cool. So we got to see all that. People got to understand what Darby is, but he didn't take the pinfall. He established himself as on the level of a Cody Rhodes. And I thought that was very valuable uh, and important for him. And my takeaway from Cody on this match is I was very down on Cody, obviously, in WWE. And then when he came out, he was very bad. But I keep noticing that like I like all his matches nowadays, which is weird for me. But I think he started to learn that he's not going to be a work rate guy. He is what he is. And so he figured out how to maximize those skills to fit with today's style of wrestling of what's popular, uh, of what's good now. And so he can have matches with Kota Ibushi and Okada that are good. And he can have this match with Darby Allen that I liked a lot. Uh, I went three and three quarters on it. I, I would have liked to have seen this go 10 more minutes. Like I thought they kind of, uh, they kind of, what's the word I'm looking for condensed the story at one point when I thought it really still had some room to grow. Uh, but you know, 20 minutes was cool. And, uh, I don't know. I just thought it was great. Darby, uh, is probably the greatest of all time. Does anybody else have any thoughts about yeah. this match? No, I, um, <laughs> this match was great. Um, I thought, um, that, yeah, I think what's really driving Cody's recent improvement is that, he, and you kind of saw it on this match, is that he can really take, like, the B side of the match. He can really let this whole match be to get Darby Allen over, and Cody's, like, a little bit getting out of the way, because his offense was really only designed for Darby to sell and not for Cody to shine. So let Darby sell, let Darby do his crazy spots, let Darby work a little bit of a story where he's the technical wrestling guy as well as being insane. And yeah, I, I think this did a good job to establish Darby as just, and I love the finish. Um, I thought it was very hokey pro wrestling, but in a good way. Like it was very, like I said, that kind of fluent in irony, the fact that they timed it exactly down to the the pinfall hitting two right as the time went out was like the perfect, like doing a big loud metaphor and kind of like letting you accept it be goofy. Yeah, this uh, this was pretty strong. Um, my favorite part of the match was probably Darby's entrance. Uh, I just thought he looked like a fucking superstar. Uh, had the dope entrance music. Had like the fucking cool prop with the body bag. Uh, came out just like confidence on a hundred thousand trillion million. 
Um, they even changed like the lights for his entrance, just made him project like a huge fucking cool guy. Um, and like a badass, but also like, you know, emo wounded Raven guy or whatever it is. That was spectacular. Um, the match kind of played out the way that I thought it would, um, which was that Darby was going to sell all over the place and kill himself and get over that way. Um, the, you know, people were, you know, in histrionics because he took a big bump on the apron and he's going to take big bumps wherever the fuck he is. So he may as well do it here and make a bunch of money for it. Um, but yeah, the, I guess the issue of the match was that Cody's, offense was not so brutal that you could read it as anything other than um darby like killing himself like he does that just insane spot where he like takes a bump through the turnbuckle and ends up falling to the outside and this is like a transitional darby thing so darby's the fucking man um he came across like a million bucks but the actual match was like less than a million bucks because it was dependent on Cody, you know, putting the putting work in on him and it, it just wasn't as compelling as like seeing Walter chop through his chest. Um, you had the one really goofy thing where Cody put him in the body bag and just like tapped him with his foot on the beautiful disaster kick. Got to get rid of the beautiful disaster kick. Uh, it's named after a 311 song and, and it's worse than the song. Um, <laughs> um, it's, it's summer, so I do like 311. Um Probably the band I've seen live more than any other one. Uh, I think we've discussed that. Uh, but yeah, the, the the finish was super cool, but not quite as compelling again as it could have been. If if Darby was like forty percent more dead, then it's a little more compelling, and the you know the experience of watching the match is a little more riveting, and maybe the crowd gets behind Darby more than they did because uh, the crowd was like not quite sure what to make of Darby here, even though like. I don't maybe you have to be a gamer to look at Darby and not think that he's the coolest guy on the planet. Um, and the time limit draw was like a very smart finish, but they did not really let it breathe because they went right to the angle. This was a complaint that other people had, um, which is probably correct. Like it was a little like TNA impact thing where it's like, oh, we just had this big thing. Now we're jumping to the back for the next segment. Like needed to have a little more time for the commentators to be like holy shit like darby landed on his spine and got whipped out of the ring at 100 miles per hour and cody Rhodes still couldn't beat him like needed a little bit more of that work done i thought yeah um i, th- I think i mostly agree about the finish in terms of uh, yeah the the finishing angle it, it did let them get out of the kind of five more minutes chant which um is a big plus for them but uh, other than that yeah i, I think i think it didn't uh you could have had a little more time for darby to shine afterwards and, that, and that's kind of what i wanted to say before throwing it back to ab is that darby specifically is someone who is important to you know the history of this podcast you know and its previous incarnations we've been able to attract darby from you know a kid to you know who is doing a tryout match in the boom or whatever to you know, I, I would say, yeah, he translated as an absolute major league act and a major league pro wrestling company. And so that's just fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. It It's so cool to see someone that like developed like that. And I loved it. Uh, I'm also with Nate. After seeing Darby versus like Walter, Cody's offense just kind of does not stack up to it. I did really like the match. And I mean, Darby went out there and became a star. And it's something that I think we all knew could happen for him. All right, as we've alluded to after the match, Sean Spears comes out, hits Cody with a chair directly in the head. 
Uh, well, let, let me start here. That after all this happens, uh, Sean Spears posted a clip on Twitter from a, a Road to Double or Nothing episode where Cody called him, quote, a great hand. And I have to give a shout out to Nate here, who at the time I thought it was kind of like funny that he was like low key burying him. And Nate uh, correctly pointed out then that maybe it was the start of an angle that they could use later as something that would uh, this would piss off Sean Spears. So if, let's just talk about the angle first. I love the angle. You got to have if you want to introduce Sean Spears in a totally new way so that he's not just the 10 guy, then they nailed that. He's immediately uh, a heel, obviously, and he immediately comes off like a star. He looks like a big deal because he comes out and just knocks the shit out of Cody. Obviously cracks him open. There's lots of blood. Great angle. I can't imagine this match is going to be good, but I'm looking forward to it anyway. Yeah, I think you pretty much nailed it. I think this is where I said in after seeing this in the MJF matches where I decided like, oh, AEW is really good at pro wrestling because I like hate all of their heels. I just, their heels are despicable and I want to see them get beat up is this like shitty little cast off from the WWE who's the fucking 10 guy and we have to put up with the 10 guy and his shitty fucking Canadian <laughs> Punisher logo and like take himself seriously. And it's like, like, and you, and you have that tension of like, oh, the, it, it sucks, but also like, I know he's a good hand and I know he's charismatic and can get over and it probably won't suck. So, yeah. I will say the um, Canadian Punisher logo, like the, the Maple Leaf aspect does uh, uh, well to take some of the... Um, uh, hate symbol uh, connotations off of the Punisher logo. And it's at least at minimum better than like the thing we saw in his one road to segment where he was like on top of a parking garage next to a sports car trying to be like cool guy or whatever. The fucking pissed off guy who brains people with chairs is at minimum better than that. Um, so yeah, I thought the angle did well to uh, give Sean Spears a new direction. I, I'm hoping it's not uh, a big mass that we have it all out just because that's the show I'm going to, but uh, like perfectly good, you know, mid card TV feud or whatever to have these guys settling all their old issues and Cody not believing him and or whatever. This also did a good job of paying off the road to lore. Like AB talked about, you had MJF as part of the nightmare family come out and be like, you know, super pissed off on Cody's behalf. We saw MJF like, you know, saying fuck you to Sean Spears on whatever episode of road Two that was. Now, they kind of might maybe fuck that up later, we'll talk about. But, um, you know, in, in the immediate aftermath, it was like, oh, wow, this is like, you know, a, a cool direction for this to go in next. Um, I guess, do we talk about the chair shot now or do we want to address that at all? I don't really care. Um, I just want to add one thing while we're still talking on Sean Spears, and that is he's already announced for a fight for the Fallen coming up in a six-man match. And so I just, it kind of signals the fact that he's not really like some kind of big figure they're holding off for this main event feud against Cody. It's just like here we're establishing here's this piece of shit mid-carter who will feud with Cody and probably get his ass kicked. Cody's a mid-carter in this promotion, isn't he? Upper mid-carter. Mid oh, I wanted to I wanted to go back to one thing. If Tony Khan actually said something, the words 90% matches, he is absolutely a TEW guy. Like, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he, he did. He for sure is. I think we can, we can conclude that he is. Alright, I only want to get off one take on the chair shot thing. So a lot of discourse around the chair shot, whether there should be unprotected chair shots. 
Unfortunately, this led to Tony Khan having to say that the chair was actually gimmicked, which is just a bummer to me because it's like, I just want to watch this show and enjoy it, right? And I just want to believe that he knocked the shit out of this guy and that's fun. But you have the uh, the vaunted safety police who come out. And here's my only take on the safety police. I get if you are concerned about this. And my first piece of advice to you is just find something else to do with your time. But my second thing is this. These are adults and they have agency. They can choose what they want to do. The takes about that they shouldn't allow unprotected chair shots, they're really, they infantilize pro wrestlers. And they do the same thing to pro athletes a lot of times, which it's like, you think that you know better than these guys about what they should do. And I find that to be really problematic in that it's like, no, these are, Okay, I mean, Kota Ibushi is an idiot, sure. But most of these people are like of at least average intelligence. Like, let them do what they want and let them make their own choices. You don't know better than they do. That's my main take. This is now a libertarian wrestling podcast. <laughs> I think, um, what I want to add to pull us back into leftist territory is that um, there's a little bit of a difference in the labor relations aspect of this in that this is literally the EVP of this company choosing, yes! to, take, choosing to take on a dangerous spot. And like, it, it, I don't think this is something that like Tony had to pressure Cody into doing. This was almost certainly Cody's angle as he drew up, got that chair gimmicked. And unfortunately, yeah, everyone's kind of acknowledging that um, something went wrong. I kind of liked the idea that like when I was watching, like I had that ambiguity of like, oh, I don't know what happened, but I know that Cody took on a certain amount of risk, you know, inherently. And in agreeing to do this, which I'm sure he did in a professional manner because he's a professional stuntman. So, yeah. Yeah. And something else about this was Tony Conant, like when he gave up the ghost and said, okay, chair was gigged. It turned out that like they shaved down the seat of the chair to make it basically a cookie sheet that looks like a chair, but it was, he called a pilot error. So, and they had like a protocol and all this planned out and these are adults and being completely honest, people's understanding of CTE is completely messed up to begin with. Like a lot of this is repeated things. We're not talking about chair shots. We're talking about people doing drop downs, doing taking bumps and not taking care of their brains after that. And again, Cody is an adult male. He is the, he is the EVP and I, no one shoved him into this. So he had agency and knowing Cody him getting his head split open, he probably thought made this thing even better. And he's like, oh, hot damn. This is something that my dad would have done in Florida, like building up a big feud where I was being left bloody. So, yeah, this was this rolled. And I just wish they didn't like think we needed to be satiated by saying, oh, he's OK. Like I would have just had Cody like no mentions of Cody for the rest of the night, even though like, oh, he's, he's being checked out at the medical facility. Like that's all I would have done, to be honest. So I'm going to be uh, occasionally adversarial and take the devil's advocate position then and say that I understand people who are concerned about the safety of human beings because that is like an empathetic, natural human thing that should be cultivated and supported. We should want people to be concerned about the health and wellness of other humans. <laughs> and uh, we should not want people's brain to be mushed in their old age or you know their spines to sever in the pro wrestling ring. Um, that's a silly cost. Um, but it also, you can, you can really take that position also because it's, it takes people out of the enjoyment of the match. If they're concerned that somebody is legitimately super injured, like, uh, it, it's hard to 
and if, if you have, uh, I guess, empathetic fibers in your being and you see somebody get severely hurt in the first couple minutes of a match or whatever, it makes you enjoy the match less. Uh, it also is bad for business because you're theoretically, uh, you know, uh, eliminating future earners from your wrestling company's plans. These are all reasons to take care of people's health and not do stupid bumps or chair shots just for the sake of maybe looking badass for a couple seconds. That being said, they still did this correctly because they gimmicked the chair and they also uh, uh, prepped the smart audience for that fact because they do. There would probably be people upset about the, uh, uh, the direct headshot chair. Uh, and they told Dave and probably Brian about it before the case. And they said, hey, you know, there's going to be something on this show that people are going to be upset about but we gimmicked it so that it would be okay. So that's, they're working on two levels there because they're doing the big spot to get a big reaction and shock people. But they're also letting the safety nerds know, hey, it's okay, they gimmicked this, this was planned, like they shaved the seat down or whatever. And they primed Dave to tell everybody about that after the fact and sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, put a uh, dampening effect on the discourse. And, but then it still went wrong because he hit him with the wrong part of the chair or whatever. It actually looks like, like he like gashed him more than he, you know, bludgeoned the cut open. So, which might be why he doesn't have a concussion. But, um, I guess my, my takeaway is I totally understand not wanting to do unprotected chair shots or not wanting to see unprotected hair chair shots because you have, um, that part of your personal character, but they still tried to do it the right way. So I'm not mad at it at all. All right. We can move on from that. There's been plenty of discourse about it already. The Elite, Kenny Omega, Matt Jackson, and Nick Jackson defeated the Lucha Brothers and Laredo Kid. I had to take this straight from the Observer because I thought it was so funny. Omega pinned the Laredo Kid after a V-Trigger, J-Driller, V-Trigger, and One Weekend Angel. <laughs> Kenny Omega rules. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, so that seems a little like overkill, but uh, maybe it was it was great. So, Kara? I'm going to jump to you. What were your thoughts on this match? Yeah, um, as a resident gamer, I definitely want to... This was definitely the most like CEO-themed uh, match of the night as the Elite came out in full uh, Street Fighter gear. Um, Matt and Nick Jackson as Ken and Ryu and uh, Kenny Omega dyeing his hair to play Akuma. Uh, went big in on the nerd uh, cosplaying Akuma actions of it. Uh, did the Hadouken spot in the match for the first time probably in a decade and to a huge pop and just just really did enough to signal like hey this is my fun show that i'm doing for fun i'm gonna let six people who are all good workers go out there and do work let laredo kid the new guy get a lot of shine um pause the match to let pentagon like do all his cool spots for like two minutes just to let everyone know that pentagon's a badass yeah great match i liked it a lot i thought that the gamer spots made me wonder, uh, and actually I see this, this Kara. So we have Ryu and Ken. We have Akuma. Who's going to yeah. be the Dan? Uh, of the Elite? Oh, um, that's obviously money. Yeah. Or, or unless Flip comes over, which I hope he doesn't ever. Yeah, do. yeah. I mean, Flip's too busy doing a half-bit Konami character now in ROH. But I thought this was a lot of fun. This is a match that was really set up to make Laredo Kid into someone he took a huge beating with it. I felt like that everything from Lucha Brothers and the Young Bucks is about the same as what you expect. You know, I mean, at this time, this was the third 
matchup of these two just this year and like the elite extended universe does not include how many times I've seen them in PWG, how much I've seen them in like other promotions. And this was fine. This was good. I enjoyed it a whole lot. I did think it was kind of funny that Kenny, like whatever hair dye he did was kept on dripping out of his hair. So I was playing a little game on my, my, my mind because I was already tired. This was getting close to my bedtime that I was playing a game of, was that a blood spot on the ring or was that Kenny's hair dye? because they didn't change the uh, the ring map between that. But overall, you know, I probably had this I had this behind the uh, the Moxley-Janela match, and I had this one behind the three-way tag. But I thought this was really cool. They're going to do a run back of this match for Triple Mania on August 3rd, which is pretty cool. Fun little game return. Oh, sorry, Cara? Fun little game return. They're doing a run back. Yeah, they're doing a run back, exactly, at... Triple Mania, which is something I'm I'm excited about. It'll be Kenny Omega's first ever match in Mexico, which not a lot of people have picked up on. Like he never did CMLL, and when he was in DDT, DDT had no real relationship with a Mexican promotion. But all in all, I thought this was it, whatever match you imagine this them to have, they had and they executed it quite well. So I liked it. Nate, any thoughts on the uh, six man tag? Uh, a lot of those spots were fucking crazy. Yeah, these are great spot guys, and they just let them do great spots. It fucking rolled. All right. Well, let's move on. I guess that was technically the main event, as they announced in the building. And then we got an unsanctioned match, folks. A lights-out match. They literally turned the lights out, turned them back on, but kept all the same production. Yeah, uh, I did. That rolled. Yeah, that was good. (laughs) I'm glad they did that. That, That's the extra work where you're like, okay, they pretended it was unsanctioned, so now we can, uh, you know... Play along with the fiction that it's unsanctioned. That I just want a little bit of justification. But they half-assed it. If you're yeah, going, it un- sucked ass actually. If you're going to do an unsanctioned lights out match, you don't have Paul Turner as the referee. You go get one of the random Dark Order minions out there. You toss them like a black T-shirt and jeans and say, "Okay, go out there." You don't have pyro for John Moxley. You don't have theme music. You don't have like all kinds of lights on the stage. Nah, that's too much. No, I, I think the. Commit to this in, in 2018. You have to completely commit to 2019. it. 2019. <laughs> why didn't I, they just? Why didn't they just call it a no DQ match? Like that's the thing that's stupid is calling it an unsanctioned match because to sell that you've got to do all the stuff that Mike's talking about. Otherwise, it comes across as dumb. No, you have to do like half of the stuff that Mike's talking about. They, 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 cool they did zero. Put like, if they put like a black patch over his uh, logo on his referee shirt, that would have been funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they they were definitely like doing it in a little bit of an irony sense. Like they definitely, I think the the bit is that the promotion was like, oh, we don't want to sanction this match, but we still want to sell tickets to it and get everyone to enjoy the show. And it, I think, I think that's a little bit of this, the same sort of very like '80s pro wrestling live promotion kind of feel. The the kind of shit that Cody eats up was was the whole going way too far into kayfabe, explaining the unsanctioned match bit and doing a little bit of the meta irony there which is AEW is fluent in irony yeah this is all the threshold you have for how much um logic you require in your wrestling and people all have different thresholds like i complained about this last week but then they did the lights thing and i was like okay well they're you know they're pretending so that was enough for me other people are going to require more obviously um but yeah it's just it you know uh they have to find some sort of uh, uh, baseline level for how much logic and uh, and backstage sort of justification for stuff they're going to do. Well, ultimately, John Moxley defeated 
Joey Janela in the unsanctioned match. No Penelope Ford out with Joey. And uh, no mention of Mox as being the IWGP US champion. So uh, it tells us how they're going to deal with that at least. Uh, but Nate, what did you think of the actual match? I thought the actual match was a lot of fun. Um, the Those barbed wire boards are so weird looking because they like it seems like they're on construction paper or something. You know what I mean? Like they're not on boards of something. They're like on a, a softer, a softer board and they put the barbed wire on it. Um, that uh, just weird, you know, uh, uh, television, hardcore match kind of thing there. Um, but I thought the match was a lot of fun. They did a lot of cool bumps. Um, they really did a pretty good job of putting Joey through enough, um, you know, actual pain and, and letting him get crucified or whatever for long enough that it was like, okay, now we see that, you know, Joey Janela is like a fucking tough guy on the level of this big star, John Moxley. So they, they, they did a good job in accomplishing that objective, I thought. And um, really, I thought the, the, the standout part of the match was just like seeing John Moxley in his element and being like, you know, I'm going to wrestle my match the way I want to wrestle it. I want to have fun out there. Um, but at, at, on the same, at the same time, there was like a pretty clear, and I don't want to get this blocked by Janela again, but like Moxie comes out there doing like his physical charisma shoulder things and is like extremely cool in the ring or whatever. And you see Joey like trying to do his part of that exchange. And you're just like, okay, I see there's a, you know, a difference here in these two performers. I think it's fine for one performer to be the star and one performer to be the kind of like kind of underground guy, you know, who is still an artist, but not quite an ace about it. Yeah, no, I think that, um, this reminded me of, you know, I didn't know exactly what to expect coming into this match. If we were really going to get like a full on, you know, death match, if we're getting like GCW levels of things, probably not. Um, I think the threshold for everyone was, is there going to be one or more light tubes or not? Uh, it turned out there were none. And this kind of leaned a little bit more towards the, uh, your kind of WWE hardcore style from the mid two thousands, maybe like your, uh, your TNA uh, abyss monsters ball kind of match, um, yeah. but done done really well. You know, done with two people who are adept at doing that art form. You know, and there was just enough innovation and right, just the right level of kind of a controlled real violence and in a really like the. I mean, we we all have to talk about Joey Janela's bare feet, um, obviously, and I, you know. Perversion aside, I think that it's something that is really innovative that they pull out in the match. It's like, oh, yeah, shit, that really hurts a lot. You know, this is something really un bringing that right level of like artistic discomfort uh, that, you that you're really looking for out of a hardcore match without being quite as uh, death inducing. Yeah. And as someone whose greatest fear is to reenact Die Hard, that really affected me on an emotional and psychological level. Like you all could torture me by making me step on thumbtacks. I hate it. So them like having like that kind of almost, at least for me, body whore in that was a really tremendous way of differentiate differentiating themselves in this kind of match that as you really well put, I, I was calling it an ECW 90s level plunder, but you hit the nail on the head. Like this was like a Monsters Ball match from TNA. And I thought it was well affected. I thought that it definitely got a what the idea of what all elites John Moxley is going to be. And I think Janela acquitted himself well. And for a match that wasn't going to have light tubes, luckily there was no like, there was there, that was some of the safest barbed wire I've seen. And that includes Dragon Gate, which had barbed wire and completely clipped it. 
I thought that this was done really well and I enjoyed it a whole lot. I didn't like this. I'm going to take uh, that side of this. Here's my deal. All the storytelling between Moxley and Janela was about how they're both crazy asses who want to kill each other. Janela keeps going on about how he's fine if he dies in the ring. And then they come out and they have this weak-ass death match. Like, there's got to be crazier weapons. There's got to be more blood. There's got to be real concern at some point that someone is injured. And we didn't get any of that. I fit, Yeah, so you're not wrong about the story. I think you're just um, speaking from a per perspective of someone who's watched too much pro wrestling. I think if you put a crazy ass death match on this show where you are, you know, sincerely concerned that somebody's going to bleed out, uh, then you turn off a lot of normal people who want to watch normal pro wrestling. Well, those people can uh, get bent, I guess. I, I think it's fair that nobody expected uh, Takedo Kodaka on this on the show. And um, even though I think everyone on this podcast can agree that Takedo Kodaka is one of the best matches of all time. But, you know, that that's just there, there's a certain level that um, they were going to allow on on TNT and on BR Live and on this affiliated promotion. And I think we weren't exactly sure where their threshold was going to lie. And, you know, maybe it could have been higher, maybe not. But I am not disappointed with the uh, the one they set and the way they work within those creative restrictions. Yeah, I think it was the right level because um, you had the unique spot that everybody's going to remember with taking the shoes off and doing the, the thumbtack bump into the feet. Like, that's the right level of like, oh, you know, this guy is going to be able to walk tomorrow and is not going to bleed out in the ring but you can also acknowledge oh yeah he is really going under a fair amount of physical pain uh, in order to get this match over you had like joey did do a big fucking dive off a ladder in the ring to the outside through some tables that's like you know that used to be like a really big bump you know maybe it's not anymore because we're all um the uh, yeah, you jeff know oversaturated with wrestling but yeah that'd be like a jeff hardy bump yeah yeah jeff hardy made his career on doing like six of those ever yeah, for sure. And and Janela does one here, like in his first main event and their second show ever. So I think it was the right level. Um, you know, you got like the superficial cuts on Moxley's back, which looked just good enough, but also aren't going to turn off normal human beings who don't like seeing blood all over the place. Um, so yeah, I thought it was good and fun and crowd went wild in the appropriate ways. So um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm for it and Aaron is wrong. I guess it'll at least set expectations like you guys are saying so I, I won't be disappointed for the next match that they build this way i just yeah i just wanted uh, more death i guess more death and destruction yeah i in, in hindsight it is very um noticeable that they never used the term death match because um, they certainly did not give us a death match but they gave us i i feel like they gave us a good unsanctioned match hmm. all right that's the show uh because we've gone so long, I'm probably going to skip over the Tony comments from after the show. I think we've kind of discussed most of them throughout this show already. Yeah, the, the only one that I felt like really was kind of worth getting into was that he did address the WWE of all fight for the fallen thing. And he basically has said, we're just going to focus on ourselves. This is the wrestling industry. These things will happen. But other than that, I feel like that we kind of talked about it enough. It's a good interview. It was with our good friend Chris Van Vliet, and it's on YouTube. So check it out. Yeah, I guess the biggest newsworthy thing was he said there's not going to be intergender matches in 
uh, in AEW, which I guess that's not the newsworthy thing. I guess a lot of people have drawn on the fact that he said that he thinks it reeks of domestic violence, which has uh, brought a lot of takes from that. Uh, so I'm not sure about that take from Tony Khan, but I guess I just don't care whether there's uh, so-called intergender matches in this promotion. Yeah, there there are easier justifications for not having intergender than calling that out. Like yes. having having divisions lets you create more viable stars in different places on the card. Um, also, like it, like I was talking about the you know hardcore match. If you're trying to appeal to normal people, there's going to be a, a built-in um, resistance to intergender stuff. Um, and the risk outweighs the reward in that regard. I think like you can try and be the the uh, pioneers of intergender pro wrestling, but the advantages of doing that in terms of a wrestling promotion and, and driving commerce are, are not going to be outweighed by the number of people you turn off when you're on TNT on a Wednesday night in prime time. Um, so yeah, you can just say that instead of talking about domestic violence, especially when you're not the company running Saudi Arabia. It would be popular there. That's my joke. It really oh. helps to not be running Saudi Arabia in a lot of respects. I think that I, I like even only like 25% as a joke. I think like AEW coming along at a time where the uh, where the competition is so transparently evil um, really, really help. It really is helping AEW out. All right. And so Tony trying to I, I feel like Tony trying to. Uh, limit exactly where he's where he's willing to go and, and willing to show that you know he's going to be sensitive to all kinds of these different perspectives is not only like a cool guy thing to do cool guy thing to do in terms of you know it's cool to be cautious and considerate about that sort of thing but also like it's a good place for AEW to situate itself for growth in the market all right let's move on to the next show that's going to come up for AEW. that's fight for the fallen july 13th in Jacksonville, it's going to be free on BR Live again. And next week, we'll do a full-on preview of that show. Uh, but we can get through the road to Fight for the Fallen Episode 2. It starts out with uh, showing the, the footage of Sean Spears attacking Cody. We get some extra footage backstage with Spear, or before he gets backstage, with Spears walking out and flipping off the crowd. Uh, we see Cody going backstage with Brandy getting medical attention. And uh, MJF is mad that security let this happen. Sean Spears walks by and he and MJF kind of bark at each other. I think this little segment shows the real limitations of the MJF character in that it's impossible, at least for me, to buy him as legitimate in that situation of being mad at Sean Spears. He sounds like MJF, the character, talking about why he's upset rather than where Sean Spears looks like he's actually fired up about this whole thing. Yeah, that's an issue with MJF. Like, as great of a promo he is, this is a problem that he has his character, but, and we've seen it somewhere, somehow stretch out outside of the ring. But this definitely, with a show like this, where it's supposed to be a little bit more honest and more of a shoot, this kind of was something that, that you know, kind of stuck in my crawl a little bit about this, especially with what match was set up after this. I, uh, I I don't agree. I thought MJF was uh, pretty believable here. I thought he was much more believable than like those BT segments where he and Brandy are insulting each other back and forth. That reeks of fake. This felt much more real. Yeah, I thought it was a fine backstage promo. I like the I like the backstage promo concept that they're doing all together. I, I like these kind of little segments released as little drips on uh, on their social channels. I you know AEW is doing a really good job as being the kind of social media 
savvy promotion. You know, I follow them on their various YouTube channels and Twitter accounts because that is how I consume a lot of media and they do a good job at serving me there. We see a Fighter Fest highlight package. And then we got Nick Sobek and he's talking about Farah and Farah sponsoring Fight for the Fallen. And friends, we get a Farah and Farah appearance. Chuck and Eddie are here in the Huge. flesh. Huge get. <laughs> Huge get. They're talking about uh, the Jacksonville so, shooting. Are these like celebs? Like, are these like celeb lawyers? I'd never heard of them until this. Kind of a little bit in Florida. Like, Nate, I know that you were out of Florida by the time I was there, but I definitely have seen Chuck and Eddie on a bunch of billboards in South Florida. Like, I wouldn't say that they're like full on legends. Like, they're no like, they're no like Michael Irvin legends in, in Florida, but there definitely are like in the weirdness of how Florida operates, where it's 80% law firms and 20% vape shops. They are like people of note in that thing. And I, I, I just like the idea of having them there. Like, I know they're kind of somewhat controversial, but I thought that. This was very kind of cool about how they talked about signing up and talking about the shooting and talking about the relationship with the cons in the Jacksonville community kind of got that further over for us on this segment. Yeah, I guess they're um, probably known to the degree that any like uh, billboard lawyers are known in Florida, but there's like a jillion billboard lawyers in Florida because it's like a fake state. So I guess that's <laughs> the only the, the part about their segment, like you know, heart is in the right place. They're wanting to do good by these victims and, uh, you know, go to this cause. And then so they're like, oh, you, you know, we never thought this could happen in Jacksonville. It's like, this happens constantly everywhere in this country. Like, there's definitely going to be a shooting by you, whoever's listening to this, in the near future, because they're constant. There was one uh, in Aurora, Illinois, not far from me, pretty recently. Like, this is the Wild West. So, uh, that you know, kind of missing the thread there. Uh, Woke Kings, Chuck and Eddie tell us that uh, they acknowledge that passing more gun laws and putting more cops on the streets, they specifically said more cops on the streets, won't stop gun violence. So, shouts to Chuck oh, and Eddie. Did they really say that? I'm, I probably walked away while I was saying that. Fuck that. Jesus. Yeah, they said, no, th no, they're good. They said putting more yeah, cops on the streets good. won't help. I thought they, you said passing gun laws. They said passing gun laws and putting more cops on the streets won't help that the okay, people passing gun laws is good though. No, passing gun laws is bad actually, Nate. Okay, well, uh, it's it's complex. <laughs> it is complex. It, only left only leftists should have idea. guns. There should be gun laws yeah. against non-leftists with guns. Is the point. Yeah, you should only be allowed to have a gun if you're cool and definitely not going to kill yourself. Only so. poor people should have guns. Is my take. Yeah, arm, arm the homeless. Yes, a lot of poor people are right wing. Well. They can have guns. <laughs> All right. Yeah, that's fine. I'm I'm less scared of poor people with guns than I'm rich people with guns for sure. Yeah. I'm yeah. I'm really I'm gonna regret this segment. I'm almost confident. Okay. All right. Then we get the big announcement, the most controversial part of of the episode. They announce Jimmy Havoc, Joey Janela, and Darby Allen versus Sean Spears, Sammy Guevara, and MJF. So uh, Nate, I know you had the post on our Twitter account about how oh, sloppy this was so what's your take on this match i mean it's like pretty self-evident like this this episode started off with mjf pissed at sean spears about this attack on his fake best friend cody and then he's like in a team with him which like you know i guess mjf's trying to do the work on twitter now being like wow you know why is this why am i tagging with this guy who i'm mad at and you know i presume maybe they're gonna play that out in the match itself 
but it's still stupid. Like, even if they did that, it's still stupid. Who put this match together? Like, we know Cody's making the matches. <laughs> like, that was established on Road 2 when he's, you know, booking this match against Dustin and bringing on all this other talent. And we see them signing people. We know these are the people making the matches. They have to sort this out because it doesn't make any fucking sense why Cody would put this guy who brained him in the head with the chair on a team with MJF, who is his fake best friend, um, to go against the the violent baby faces. Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. There's not there's nothing they can do in the match where they don't get along that's going to make me happy with the way this match is happening. Yeah, this is going to be some bad... Like, you just set up that maybe it is that WWE's like broken brain wrestling is so carried over to other forms of the medium that I see this match. I'm like, oh God, this is going to be partners can't can't cooperate together against a team of people that in theory should be on the same page. Like this is what I saw when doing this. And it just made me feel like that that all their chickens weren't in a row with this match. This is some extremely like CMLL hat shit. This is they just they just <laughs> stuck the three guys together because they're all rudos. Hold on, are we gonna ignore that? Mike just said they didn't have all their chickens in a row. It's like a normal thing to say. Isn't that a thing? Yeah. That's a, your eggs I, in a row? I, I think ducks you put in ducks, in ducks in a row. Ducks in a row. Ducks in a row. Oh, so. <laughs> I always heard chickens in a row growing up. This is like... All birds are the same. All birds are the same. All birds are evil. And this is like the hand five, you know? Ducks Ducks in a row. Chickens, bef- chickens before egg. eggs and no eggs uh, in one basket. Yeah, eggs can't be in one basket. That's it. There Thank you, Mike, for continuing the not actually a bit on this show of you saying something very funny. Guys, I, I, I am not a very smart person. You <laughs> long enough to know that I think things are supposed to be idioms and sayings when they aren't. So no big surprise here. It's very true. He was smart enough to not chime in on the gun control part of the conversation. <laughs> yeah, that was. He's a real smart one. I'm not smart enough. And I'm too early in my political development to have a good theory about that. So I just. <laughs> Cora was going to back me up on that, and she just buried me. Tell yeah, me. no, for sure. Well, I'm right. And I'm just, right now, all I can think about is how now nobody is selling for my CMLL hat bit. So <laughs> I am a proponent of the AAA feud spinner, where they only have three segments on it that's either. Family argument, invader angle, or Conan does something weird. So I like that one more than the booking hat, personally. I like that it's a six-man tag. Uh, that I like, because six-man tags are neat in a good way to not burn you know, bigger matchups. But just, just super fucking stupid to have Cody. We have to conclude that Cody made this match. And he put Sean Spears. Like They have to get the authority thing worked out somehow. And the last segment of Fight for the Fallen or Road to Fight for the Fallen episode two is a focus on Brandy. She talks about being brought into wrestling for her looks, but trying to become more than that. And then we get this long part about her being a figure skater as a younger woman. And essentially the story is that she was really good when it didn't matter and failed when the lights were brightest. Uh, It's very relatable as she talks about not even trying at something because you just know you're going to let everybody down. So I really uh, respected that. And it kind of goes into this thing that she's feeling like she's not good at wrestling and not going to be good enough, good enough. And so all this stuff in the past about her going at Allie was really just a defensive thing, uh, trying to take down Allie uh, because all the stuff she says about her is actually true about Brandy. And she closes by saying she's got to get past the demons in her head that are telling her she can't do this. So very weird segment in that the story to this point has been about like evil boss trying to do things to 
hurt Allie. And it was all kind of cheesy or like, you know, silly in, in that BTE type way. And then now we get this sudden turn that baby faces Brandy and gives us a, a whole different look at the match, you know, 10 days before the show. So this was, again, a good execution of humanizing one of their roster members and making them likable on like a fundamental level um, by, you know, being like, hey, this is a human being who's like had struggles in their life and stuff. That's good. And it's also good to get away from like that build that might have been like a little TNA knockout division kind of thing where they're like <laughs> by the pool and bikinis being catty at each other. That's like you know, but how you could uh, unfavorably read those previous segments. Um, it's not like there was a ton of build about Brandy and Allie where she was being like an evil boss to her. So I'm not like actually mad about it. Um, I guess I, I don't know that this makes me more interested in the match or the winner of the match at all. Like, but I guess, you know, again, this is a pro Brandy podcast. Uh, it just uh, makes Brandy a bit more likable and makes you root for, maybe uh, her performance a little bit more stronger than you might otherwise. Yeah, this does a lot to humanize her in a lot of ways. And I, I mean, I'm very pro Brandy and I thought this was a very relatable thing. And I don't know like necessarily how much I feel like this does to the state actual in ring stakes of the match. I mean, I guess that we know that at all out, we will see the women's title and I guess we'll have some indication of where that division's going, but I thought this was a very interesting thing for like as many weeks of her being kind of like goofy about these things, like always like having like a master plan. And now she, you peel back the layers and you have some deep insecurity. I thought that was pretty relatable. Yeah. I think like AEW again, uh, wants everyone to be fluent in like their levels of reality and kayfabe and irony that they're operating at. And like, we can have a little bit of concurrently, like Brandy is playing the fun boss, but the, the evil boss but the, also the is fundamentally a person behind it and here's like kind of the story we're telling about brandy mm. brandy the person and can everyone can kind of respect that we can do both at the same time because we're all adults enjoying pro wrestling and so um yeah in terms of just how this actually came off um yeah i thought it was great and i just want to point out that this is probably the best way you can really handle and have the crowd get behind someone who you know brandy is never going to blow everyone away in the work, work rate division that's just not going to happen you know her value to the company is is in other things you know she's charismatic she has these ties to the company and she can do she can get over in different ways than yuka sakazaki's getting over so yeah this 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 really set brandy up to a place where the audience will be um behind her and appreciative of what she can do and what what she and creates to that crowd atmosphere where yeah AEW is always talked about as the crowd wants to like everything and that's the best part of it and they pride me for it all right so that's a little bit of the build for fight for the fallen we'll talk about that more on next week's episode we've got just a few news items to bust through uh, at the end here literally going to push through these because i know we've already gone long so uh, everybody feel free to pipe in if you've uh, got something to say, yeah, that too. That was a mic moment. Sorry. Nice idiom. <laughs> Mark. <laughs> uh, all right. So uh, the Young Bucks announced on Twitter that they signed a private party to full-time contracts. They offered them right after they came through the curtain. We actually saw this footage on BTE. The only interesting part to me was they said, you'll get paychecks every two weeks. Mm -hmm. so yeah. 
it establishes that there is uh, there is a hierarchy of contracts in the company and that some people are apparently kind of getting paid on per show deals maybe. And then there are some people who draw a paycheck. Work. That's my comment. Oh, wow. <laughs> Strong take from Cara. Uh, I, the, if it aired on television, I don't know how real it is. And I kind of like not knowing how real it is. Fair. Uh, we also know the Young Bucks are going to take on Private Party at Hog for the real Hogheads. Hassle Glory Wrestling, August 9th, Jamaica, New York, uh, Jamaica, Queens. And it looks like that's going to be Young Bucks' last non-AEW match in the U.S., at least for now. B. Priestley is defending the World of Stardom title against Momo Watanabe at Stardom's July 24 Corican. I bring this up in part because I like to talk about Momo Watanabe and in part because B. showed up to the press conference in an AEW shirt. After Wait, burying AEW on uh, on Stardom a time before, so Momo's going for B's belt now. Going for the red belt. What happened to to Momo's belt? Uh, uh, Arisa Harashiki has it, has, and it was great. It was that's fake. That didn't happen. Yeah, I mean, she was at Eve defending said belt, making her second defense before now facing Hazuki coming oh, up so sounds yeah. like Arisa's is doing really well with that yeah, yeah i mean she, what, what Momo did actually was she gave Arisa the belt because she's very nice and she it's knows nice. that uh, the red belt is actually more valuable than the white belt sounds sounds like uh, momo's infantilizing Arisa. it doesn't yeah. seem like that it, it makes sense I don't care about any of this because Tokyo Cyber Squad is the only staple that exists. Yeah. <laughs> and they're getting a Goddess of Stardom tag match coming up on the 15th. And that's what Good. matters. Good. I was trying to tie this into AEW, folks. And so that's what I've done here. People pop when we talk about Stardom, even though I haven't watched it in three months or something. Yeah, we, we got to play the hats. You, you got to fave that, Nate. <laughs> I mean, I watched it yesterday. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Some all out weekend updates. GCW and Black Label Pro are going to run on Friday night at 11 p.m. Two Cups Stuffed, right? That's the name of the show? Two yeah. Yeah, so that's coming up. And then Rise is running Regional Rising Stars Tournament, showcasing young up-and-coming women wrestlers, eight-woman single elimination tournament. Big Mama is confirmed for the show, and that's going to be on Sunday, September 1 at 5 p.m. I'm I'm sorry. This is the first time hearing that. Is that Big Mommy from AAA? Yeah, that... I care about. Is it her? Is I don't know. They wrote Big Mama on their. Uh, I'm I'm going to look it up now. Okay. Yeah. This, if yeah, if it's someone else, I don't know who that is. But if it's Big Mommy, um, current AAA title holder, and thus a title holder, a title holder in the AEW canon. Absolutely. Um, then well, yeah, that's big news. I, I kind of doubt it because the idea is apparently they're running several of these in different regions. Okay. And this is the Midwest, which is a fake term, by the way. This is the That's Midwest. A real term? No. Right, well, I just want to you put just over don't, You mommy. just don't have the correct definition of it. It's, it's fake. West of what? Mommy, the the East Coast? We were the best of anything. We respect Big Mommy on this podcast. We do. But this, I think, is Big Mama. We will That's... talk about Big Mommy on the on the Triple Mania card here. Yes. We will. Okay. Yeah. AW Triple A, real quick. Uh, we've already said Triple Mania is going to have a rematch of Laredo Kid and the Lucha Brothers versus the Bucks and Kenny Omega. Plus, <laughs> of Psycho Clown, Cody, and Kane Velasquez versus Tejano, Arus, <laughs> and To Be Announced. Killer Cross. I believe they have officially announced it as Killer Cross at this point. Yeah. Okay. It, it was always going to be Killer Cross. He trained Velasquez. But, oh. It's Velasquez, right? I believe it's, I don't know. <laughs> 
Okay. But um, yeah, no, it's, incredible it's, team. Just just that team of seeing three those three names of side by side: Cody Rhodes, uh, former UFC heavyweight champion Cain Velasquez, and uh, Psycho Clown, the best ace in wrestling. Yeah. Cody's going to see what it's going to be like to be a real ace when he teams with Psycho Clown and Kane. Also, this was announced. Uh, there was a show that Cody and MJF were on. On the 18th, they had to move the uh, matches around because they were going to be going up against Brian Cage. And now they moved Brian Cage out of that match because of Impact Wrestling stuff. So that was kind of interesting. I am um, a, a little annoyed that in the Kane Velasquez coverage about this match announcement, like on you know the UFC side of the news world, it's all that he's tagging with Cody Rhodes, and there's no mention of Psycho Clown whatsoever. MMA people need to respect Psycho Clown and maybe tune into this show and see what real combat sports is about. The point that Mike was making there, according to Dave Meltzer, the idea in AEW is now if they're going to wrestle on outside shows, they're only going to wrestle against wrestlers from partner promotions, which would be AAA or OWE at this point, and not wrestlers from other groups. Okay, it's not Big Mommy on the on the Rise show. It's Big Mama out of Cincinnati, Ohio. There you go. Okay, so, well, it'll, it'll probably still be a fun show, but no Big Mommy, so not as good as it could have been. But she is tagging with uh, Nino Hamburgers um, in a mixed tag four way match on this AAA show, uh, including a, a, against a team of Sammy Guevara uh, out of AEW and Scarlett Bordeaux. Um, so that's really fun, also. AAA also wants AEW to help them with their Madison Square Garden show. Uh, AEW generally seems willing to send them top guys for major shows like Triple Mania, but does not want their own guys working in the U.S., at least at a place like MSG, for somebody else's show. That's according to Dave Meltzer. No surprise there, given what happened with G1 in Dallas. You know, I didn't expect them to do, be doing MSG, to be honest. Okay, I don't think the rest of the notes I have matter, so I think that's uh, pretty much all we're going to talk about. Anybody want to uh, throw in something else before we close out? I think that's enough. good. Wrestling's good. Wrestling is good now because AEW exists and is a real promotion that held two shows. <laughs> two shows. It, it's now more real than I think Lucha Libre Elite ever was. It's more real than like 205 Live for sure. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, two- it's always fun. 205 Live is something that's fake made up for podcasters to have content each week to charge behind paywalls. <laughs> Stiff. Okay. Well, I guess that's it uh, for this week. I just want to remind everybody. Uh, do we want to talk about Cody endorsing uh, Star Fox Adventures while we have Car on the show? Uh, we absolutely should. Yeah. Oh, um, Star Fox Adventures is not as good as you remember, but um, it's good to hold the memories in your head because it does look uh, very nice. And obviously, everyone is horny for Crystal. I mean, that's just like. I, it got Nick Robinson in trouble, but um, for saying it. But I'm a furry, so I can say it. Especially on this podcast. Uh, next time, if we manage to get uh, AEW press credentials ever again, we have to ask Cody uh, if he's Horner Vickers tool. 100. Yeah, that is the best way to keep those credentials. I feel like <laughs> our promise to our listeners is that we will <laughs> ask that question if given the opportunity. At some point, one point. Mike Spears. Yeah, I, 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 we'll see. If I get the credentials for All Out, that's on top of my list for Cody Rhodes is Are You Horny from for Crystal from Star Fox Avengers? Thank you, Mike. Okay, for content like that, make sure you subscribe to the show. Uh, get the independent feed, Everything Elite, on the podcast app of your choice. Give us the five-star rating and review. So we did get a new review. 
Yes. It's from our friend Twizted 2.0. Yeah. Says too much negativity, not actual criticism. Stop being so negative. Two stars. <laughs> why, did, why did you read that on the show? I'm wondering if this is the same guy that tweeted at me the other day that we hate too much. Yeah. Oh. So, yeah. Uh, so that's just. That actually was a very good read on the show. Good content. <laughs> is it Twizted? T W I Z T I D? T E D. Oh, so it's not like the. Uh, so he's not a juggalo. Yeah. No, but uh, I thought it was very funny. It amused me. That's uh, if you're going to leave a negative review because we're too negative, that's uh, that's the one uh, justifiable negative review. I think if you're more of a stand than us, then go ahead. Um, but I am uh, Twisted 2.0. I'm going to downgrade you to Twisted 1.0. <laughs> it's funny because I spend half the show thinking like one of us has to be critical about something here because we're being too nice about this show. I mean, yeah. this is what it's like. I know it's a foreign feeling for us, but like, this is what it's like to have like a wrestling company that's good. You know, <laughs> it's like, especially an English language accessible one. Fair. All right. Well, make sure you subscribe. Get these podcasts on Thursdays mostly. Uh, make sure you follow us on Twitter at everything AEW. I'm at Aaron like the car. Nate's at Epitasis. Mike is at Fujiheya. And Kara is at Kara Anza. And I'm going to spell it K A R A O N Z A. Got him. Got him. All right, I think that's it. So for Mike, for Nate, for Kara, I'm Aaron, and we'll see you next week. Analysis, music, and, and me, Matt Coon, on total engagement. Go to any podcast platform to listen today.